Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, please check out my Amazon author page, where you'll find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books. They make great $10 gifts, Christmas gifts, or $2.99 e-book, e-book download, including the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops Crime, and Chaos. Today we're joined by a special guest and a good friend of mine, former NYPD undercover detective Noel Garcia. Hey, Noel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Vic. You know, Noel, we haven't seen each other in a long time. I, we were talking off air earlier about the last time I ran into you was in a pizzeria in the Bronx. We were already retired, and I heard your voice when you were ordering a slice, and I go, hey, they, they, that's Noel. But the funny thing is... You and I have been going back and forth in text messages, and originally we were going to do this interview an hour earlier, and you send me this text message, and you're like, hey, Vic, listen, do you mind putting the interview back an hour? i got to watch my grandson. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. And then I'm like, grandson? <laughs> and then I'm saying, Noel has a grandson? And I started laughing because it, it, it puts everything into perspective because I remember when you were a kid. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, when we worked together, I can't even conceive, you know what I mean? It's like, wow, we're friggin' old. Yep. Yeah, man, we get older, man. Things happen and families get get older. And yeah, so now I'm a grandfather. Unbelievable. And, you know, it's funny. We worked together. Well, I went to the Manhattan North Narcotics Division in the spring of 93. And then I was out of there probably about 14 months later at some time in 94. Obviously, you went on to have a very successful career in, in uh, the Manhattan North Narcotics Division. But just tell our audience a little about yourself, where you grew up, and, and how you got started in the New York City Police Department. Well, I, I grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, what they call Alphabet City. And uh, I, I began my career in uh, 1988 with the Police Department. I was assigned to uh, the 2-8 Precinct, 19 Precinct before that. Then I went on to do uh, undercover work at um, Manhattan North Narcotics. Then I went on to go to the, uh, what they call Narcotics Major Case, or Intel Division. And then I went to the 2-8 squad, then the 3-0 squad after that. So I, I moved around a bit. How many years did you put in total? Uh, a little over 20 years. I left uh, toward 20 years okay. and five I, months. I did, I left. Yeah, same thing. I did 20. So you, you go to the 2-8, which is a rough place. And at the time, that, that precinct was known as the one square mile of death because it's a square mile and it was just a violent precinct. In, in the 70s and 80s, they were averaging in that tiny precinct over 100 and, between 100 and 120 homicides a year. I mean, that's a lot of bodies yep. for a small place. Yeah. What, it was, yep. what was it like? Were you making a lot of arrests? I'm sure like arrests were just literally jumping into the backseat of your radio car. Yeah, you know, uh, the 2-8 was a, was a special place. It was, it was a one square mile. It's the smallest of all precincts in the five boroughs, but it's at the time was one of the most busiest places. You know, we had the Apollo Theater. We had, you know, a couple uh, bars that, that, were, that, that catered, you know, to, to drug dealers. And, and it was just a place where you can find whatever drug you wanted to on any street corner. And, and that's just the way it was in the 80s, you know? And when you were a rookie cop, you got assigned a pressure point, which is they used to put rookie cops on footposts around parks and drug-prone locations where they wanted arrest. And it didn't matter what, be it a guy with a couple of bags of dope, a trespass summons, right. a guy taking a piss in the street. They wanted these street people off because these street people were harassing hardworking people there. 
So you probably yeah. racked up quite a few arrests before you went to the narcotics division. Well, yeah, you know, um, I mean, I don't boast numbers, but when I, when I retired, I, I finished with a little over 800 collars in my career, like 796 or something like that. Um, uh, and I was un doing undercover work for seven years, but the 2-8 had the pressure point. It was always busy. And yeah, everybody made arrests, whether it be robbery, drugs, rape, you know, gun, gun collars. It was, it was a busy place. It really was. And for those of you listening that don't know about the New York City Police Department, 800 arrests in the NYPD is a big number. It's not like small police departments where you make an arrest, you lodge the guy, you, you wrap up an arrest in an hour. In the NYPD, when you make an arrest, you're married to that person, and it could be 8, 10, 12, 15 <laughs> hours. Your day is shot. You know, the guy got to go to the hospital. You're going to the hospital with oh, the guy. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, yeah. the guy has to be interviewed by detectives. You're babysitting him. There's no going home. So... One arrest equals one days of work. So just to put that into perspective, 800 arrests are quite a few arrests. So you were somewhat of a motorcycle enthusiast. Didn't I hear that one time you drove a motorcycle through the precinct locker room? Yeah, it was a, it was a miniature motorcycle. It was like one of the ones you see now. And, and I used to zip it through the locker room. And the guys used to, I used to make the guys laugh. It was just a good time. You know, it's a, it, it, was a, it, was a, it, was, it was a good, good time back then. You know, it's funny, precinct locker rooms, like, people don't realize, like, NYPD cops have the best senses of humor. So you're talking, in your precinct, you used to ride through on a motorcycle. My precinct, they'd be shooting fireworks <laughs> off all the time. It's like, you'd be standing there, and a penny rocket would go whistling past your head, and then explode underneath another guy's locker, and then he'd have paper there to catch fire, and someone's yeah. running down there with a fire extinguisher. I mean, people don't realize the things that go on in NYPD precinct. So how did you wind up in the narcotics division? I was actually recruited by a lieutenant who, who one night saw me coming to work and I was doing wheelies on my motorcycle and he was like, you know, this guy's a cop and he approached me and, and he found out that I did midnights in the 2-8 and that was the beginning of my career in narcotics, you know. Uh, he told me, listen, we need undercovers, uh, would you be willing to do it? And I was like, you know, sure, let's, let's do it. I didn't think twice about it. In fact, you want to hear something? Vic, something funny? Uh, What's well, not even funny? I did undercover work for about 18 months before my wife knew that I was doing undercover work. She had no idea I was doing undercover work. She thought I was going back How'd that to go the over? <laughs> Not too good, to be quite honest with you. She was like, you know, you still, where do you work? I see you got long hair, you got a beard. I was like, and then I told her the truth. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm doing undercover work. She didn't take it too, you know, too good, but it, it, I did, I did well. You know, I did it for, for seven years, I did undercover work. And you, you first got signed, how long were you out in Brooklyn North? Because you were t talking earlier that once you became an undercover, you went out to Brooklyn North, which that, that's a hellhole in itself. How long were you out there for before you broke the I wasn't. I was not out there long. So what happened was I got transferred to Brooklyn North. And uh, before getting there, I broke my hand. And it was, uh, I think I broke my hand on patrol in the 2-8. And that kind of killed that deal. So they're like, yeah, before we send you back, you know, we got to make sure you're back to full duty. And then when I went back to full duty, they were like, yeah, they, they're going to send you to Manhattan North because they're short guys. And so maybe it was a, a, a godsend because I really didn't want to go to Brooklyn. I wanted to go to Manhattan North, you know. 
You know, it's funny. I worked in the Bronx and Harlem my whole career, and I thought I was a badass. And then you start getting flown out to details in Brooklyn North, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, you see the cops, every cop, every other cop's got a combat cross yep, or yep. Medal of Valor, which means they were yep, in a gunfight yep, and killed yep. somebody. And it's like, well, what? this place is like the fucking Wild West out here. You know, like, <laughs> I guess the Bronx and Harlem ain't shit compared to those guys in Brooklyn North. Yeah, you know what? I commend those guys in Brooklyn. You know, and just like Manhattan or, or any other precinct, some are more crazy than others. You know, so I take my hats off to those that worked in the 7-5, the 7-7, you know, the pink houses. I commend those guys. They put up with a lot of years of, of, uh, of, of battling, I would say. So what was undercover school like? Because people don't realize, like, you, they just don't say tomorrow you're going into narcotics. There's a lot of training. and. They would separate the uh, the undercovers with the investigator because I was an investigator. Tell them what, what undercover school was like. So undercover school, I think, uh, was a couple weeks long. And what they did was uh, they they sent you to what they called the tack house it, at Rotman's Neck, you know. And they pretty much introduced you to the world of narcotics, you know. Uh, kilos and marijuana and heroin and PCP you know, and, 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 and how they're sold through the, the weights and how they're packaged and, and, and through the street lingo, you're, you're picking up how to talk to these guys, how to dress, you know, and, and, it, and it, was, it was a good time. It was, uh, it was, it was totally different. I mean, now they, they've disbanded organized crime. Uh, you don't hear or see narcotics out there anymore doing search warrants like we used to do in the 80s, early 90s. You know, but, but that training was, uh, was uh, intense, you know, tack house, you know, they tell you, well, what kind of gun do you want? You know, they, they take you to the, well, what do you want, a Walter PPK, or you want to, you know, it, it, was, it was like you see on TV, but just a lot better. <laughs> so tell us, so you get assigned to Manhattan North Narcotics, and, and in Manhattan North, we, did, we didn't turn out of a police building, we turned out of an armory right. in a lousy neighborhood, right. I always talk about the experience. I want to hear what you thought of the first day you got assigned to that army. Like, explain what it looked like and what was going on in there. You know, the armory was, you know, the the, the 369th Armory on Fifth Avenue and 148th Street, I think it was. Uh, and and you get and I got there and the first person that I met was James, the the the, the homeless guy in the front of the building who would wash everybody's cars. <laughs> you, you remember James? I forgot about him. <laughs> And he goes, man, what you doing here? I was like, who, who the hell are you, man? He goes, you work, you're a narcotics guy? Third floor. So he knew where the guys were. And so that was my first day. And uh, it was just a zoo there, man. It was like, it was uh, the two floors of mayhem. You know, desks on top of each other, guys on top of each other, you know, doing tack plans. And, and you know how it was when you, uh, when you line up and get ready to do a search warrant. You're pulling 20 cars in the front of the building. You got 150 guys out front doing attack plan. Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to hit this, this street, this building. And it was, it was organized chaos, I would say. This is the best I can remember it. So we, we, we had the third floor, and it, was, it, it wasn't really offices. It was like two really large conference yeah. rooms. It looked like something yeah. you'd see on television, like a boiler room. Just yeah. desks and phones, like you said, stacked on top of each other. And it was an old building. Like the fucking building was built in the 1800s. So there's like asbestos, there's piss flies. You would flush the toilet and these bats would come out, out and attack you. Um, 
you would get your car broken into like every All six months. Yeah. There was no place to eat. When I tell you there was no place to eat except there was a deli down the block, and I just remembered this the other day, that was owned by a couple of Arab guys, and we used to refer to the place as the terrorist. And we would go the to terrorist. the terrorist to get a sandwich. Yep, yep, the terrorist. I remember like yesterday. Where are you going? I'm going down to terrorist. They're like, where are you going? Where? Yeah, I'm going to go get some lunch at the terrorist. And that place is still there, by the, the way. The homeless guy. He was kind of like the concierge or the valet. He, yep, he was yep. there twenty four seven. The homeless guy, and he would he watched like ten cars a day. And he would watch I your car. About you, that guy. you give him you give him a few bucks. He'd watch wash your car, watch your car, and uh, and make sure nobody broke into it. But ninety nine percent of the time, he's the one that broke into your car. <laughs> <laughs> he never got caught because he would have gotten his ass kicked, and he would have been banned yeah. from the area. So he must have been really yep, good. Yep. Yep. So you get assigned to Manhattan North. What team were you in, and where were you making buys originally? I was I was on. Uh, I first started with a, a Billy Max team, uh, Willie McGregor, and there was another sergeant. Uh, uh, I worked for. Uh, I can't remember his name off the bat, but I worked out of the. We were going to the three three, the three four, Manhattan North, anywhere in Manhattan North. And but but the big was the biggie was the two three and the two five, you know that's that's where we went and made our money over time and that's where we got most of the drug collars, and and it was it was it was it was it was weird it was a it was a weird setup. So Manhattan North Narcotics we covered from 59th Street to the Bronx border and there's got to be, 10 12 precincts in Manhattan North and what Noel is describing like, the two three the two five, that was more street level. Spanish Harlem, it was more street level, and there was every corner. You could go to a corner like 110 and Lex, and you've got four corners, and at any given time, there could be a hundred people there involved in the drug trade. Either customers, guys selling, managers, enforcers. I mean, it was a whole ecosystem of drug dealers, but we also had to cover Washington Heights, which was a whole different animal because the Heights. Yeah, it was street level, but a lot of stuff was inside. It was run by the Dominican gangs up there, and they were a lot smarter and savvier, and they would come up to you. You would pull up, and they would have a little bit of Coke on a credit card, go, sniff, sniff. You can't sniff. You know what I mean? You, you can't. So what are you going to say? Yeah, I'm here to buy you know, a couple of grams of Coke, but nothing for me today, thanks. I'm going to take this back to New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. they tried steering you into an apartment. Did you, how, how did you handle that? You know, you know what? I say this. Undercover work isn't for everybody because there are guys that are just like, fuck that. I'm not going in that apartment by myself with, with, with no ID and no backup. You know, but I did it. You know, I, I excelled at it. At, 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 I enjoyed doing it, as, as crazy it may, as it may sound. You know, so when I did street level buys, we would go to 2325. When we wanted to do case buys, I would go to the 33 and 34. So case buys, you know. I work with, with guys, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say any names on here, you know, like, uh, you know, a bunch of good guys uh, that we worked and, and we excelled, you know, and we took down a lot of street gangs, a lot of guys did a lot of time for the stuff that we bought up there. How many drug buys do you think you made in your seven years in narcotics? Uh, drug buys, uh, over, over 500, 600 buys. Oh, I think more than that. I think more than that because when we were That's, doing B and B, you were making three, four buys a day. Yeah, I know. Four, five I, times I put, a week. I put, 
I put a conservative 500, but it's probably a lot more. I, I would think in the thousands, Noel. I mean, just the short time I was there, I would say you had to have made a couple of hundred because, and, and you never got turned out. Like, it's funny. So like as an event, see, you're out there with the undercovers, you're stepping out of a car, you're walking up to a corner with another couple undercovers, you're making a buy, you're getting into a car. The investigators, we're watching you guys. And like, you never had a problem or a story. Like you come back, yep. I mean, we could send you to buy uranium and you would come back with uranium. <laughs> but like, there were some guys there that didn't last very long. Like they, they, they either got robbed or they just couldn't, the drug dealers are like, come on, you're a cop, or they would chase them away. You know, it's, it's, you know, to say you want to be an undercover is one thing, and to actually do it is a different story. I mean, and, and I've worked with a bunch of really great undercovers, you know, um, and I learned from the best, you know, but there were guys out there that shouldn't have been out there for whatever reason, where they were too afraid to go indoors and, and, when you're afraid to do something, that's when you're most likely to get hurt because you're, you're apprehensive, you know? So your first inside buy, do you remember it? I don't remember my first inside buy, uh, nor do I remember my, my first buy, period. But I do remember that I was always out there uh, with the field team, with the, you know, with the buy money. And uh, I do remember one ten in Lex. I, I bought a lot of heroin. I bought a lot of cocaine, you know, crack. I mean, that was uh, that was our job, and 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 I made sure that I, I I did my very best, you know, in doing so. But when you get into these apartments, I mean, your heart's got to start. I mean, you're, they've got home field advantage. You're walking into some guy's apartment to buy drugs, be it weight or a couple of ounces. You know there's a gun in there, more than likely. These guys carry a gun. It's not for the police. It's because they don't want to get robbed in a home invasion because that was another thing that used to go on in the Heights. You had the Dominicans selling drugs, and then you had Dominican gangs who would go around and rip off the drug dealers. So you know, it was like I, I gotta... they were very weary. Yeah, so Vic, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, so I was doing a case by in a uh, in a bodega on 115th Street, Second Avenue, and um, my first buy there was with uh, with an informant. And um, so the informant walks me in. I remember that first day. I think I bought like ten bags of crack or whatever it was, and um, I had to ask the guy. I said, "Listen, you know, I don't want to wait for for this guy. Is it okay if I come by myself?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, you come by yourself." With the two Dominican guys, right? So I'm like, all right, perfect. So I end up doing case buys in there. And I remember I had ordered um, two ounces of, 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 of Coke. And he was like, yeah, it's on its way. And I was in the store for like, seemed like two or three hours. And the guy never showed up. So finally, I tell the guy, I said, listen, what do you have? You know, I need this thing to, you know, I, I got to deliver for somebody. He goes, what do you have? He goes, yeah, we're going to go into the back. He took me to the back of the store, opened up a refrigerator, and this guy poured out a shitload of vials of crack. So here we are counting crack vials. We're in the hundreds, like 100, 150, 200. So I told my field team, so, so uh, what's, the, what's the, uh, the, the, the secret word that I'm going to say so, so, so that guys can move in? So I forgot what the word is. Nonetheless, I give the field team the, uh, the, the word. And they bum rush the guy. And the guy's got a, a shotgun in the back, a shitload of drugs in the back. He's got a safe in the back. So, so it's, it's like, it's, it's, 
you're going into these places and you're fucking nervous is all hell. But you, 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 you try not to be as nervous. You try to blend in and talk. And um, I do remember that. Those guys end up doing a long time in prison. Yeah, what people don't realize is a hand-to-hand -hand cell, even like a, a vial of crack or uh, a deck of heroin, it's a felony. And if you have a criminal, if you have a felony conviction and you get caught selling one vial of crack or one deck of heroin, you're doing a year and a half to three. And then yeah. it goes up every other time. And it's just so funny because I used to see, like, we, we were locking up the same people. And I'm like, wait, didn't you just get out like a year ago? And they'd go right back into it. I, I, I could never understand it. What was the largest narcotics purchase you ever made? So uh, I think it's not really a large amount. Like, you, I wouldn't say, hey, I went in there, bought 20 kilos. It wasn't like that. It was more like, hey, listen, I was buying, uh, I think I was buying half a keys off of this, this, this group in the, in the Heights. And I must have gone in there about four or five times to buy half a keys, you know, and, uh, and that was a case buy. You know, uh, there was an old lieutenant from the 3-4 who had a, uh, a double homicide. And he kind of knew who they were, but had no evidence, and nobody at the time really wanted to say anything. So the lieutenant came into the office of narcotics. That's when we were in the armory. And the lieutenant was like, man, I need an undercover who can buy into these guys. So the lieutenant called me in. He goes, hey, listen, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a group working out of the Heights. Uh, they have reason to believe they did a homicide, but they have no evidence. Lieutenant wants to know if you want to buy into these guys. I was like, fuck it, man, let's do it, let's go. And, and, and I went in and, and I was buying half a keys off these guys. And um, make a long story short, we got like eight or nine guys a one uh, and and those guys, are, yeah, they did a long time. They're still in. They they pled guilty, so who knows? They're probably out already. It's been a long time. Now you're a New York City kid. Did you ever run into anybody that you made a buy off of off duty? Yeah, I did. I was with. Did my they wife recognize you, or you recognize them? Yeah, yeah, they recognized me. So, you know, the thing is, when we did, when I was doing Undercover, you know, I told my wife, I said, listen, this is what I do, all right? Uh, if, and, and my wife and I, we had this already planned uh, scenario. If, if we're ever together and I get approached by somebody, I just need you to go to get in the car and just leave. I'll figure out how I'm gonna get home. And, and so we're at the movie theater, the old Whitestone movie theater in the Bronx years oh, yeah. ago. And it's me, my wife. I don't even know what movie we went to go see. And the guy's in the line. He goes, I fucking know you. I'm like, who, me? He goes, yeah, I fucking know you. And, I'm like, and, and, I, and I start nudging my wife. I'm like, oh, I think you should get in the car and go home. Make a long story short. He goes, yo, you're that fucking undercover cop. And, and he recognized me. And luckily, the security guard came, and, and, I just, and I left. And he didn't follow me. But, yeah, it does get scary. And... And, and you do come across people uh, that, that you've bought from in the past, yeah. I, I was never, well, I mean, in, in auto crime, I bought a couple of stolen cars. But I mean, I, people I've arrested, I've run it into a couple of times. Like one time, I mean, I was towards the end of my career. I was in my early 40s. I'm online at Target with my mother, you know, <laughs> helping her get some things. And the guy, like there's a guy in front of me and he does, he looks and he looks again. And I'm getting a hairy eyebrow from this guy, right? And he's like, where the fuck do I know this guy from? And it's not good. And then finally, I see like the light go on. I go, I'm with my mother. I said, get the fuck. He goes, no, 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 everything's cool. You treated me well. And I'm like, dude, 
let's not have this conversation here online in Target. Just, I appreciate that you thought I treated you well. You know, on my mother's day, she's like 70-something years old. She doesn't need to hear this crap. Right, right, right. But like I said, you were cut above. Whatever we sent you out for, you always came back. It wasn't a problem. And I'm going to start going into some funny stories that happened during our career. And I want to see if you remember any of them. Okay. I, I'm not going to say the undercover's name, but do you remember one of our undercovers started buying spitback? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> All right. So for the audience out there, we send our undercovers out to buy crack, heroin, marijuana, fentanyl, okay? Spitback is, you got methadone clinics in New York City. So people that are addicted to heroin go to these clinics. They purchase these little cups. Well, they don't purchase. It's, they're part of a program. And you go there. You get this little cup with, a, with an orange top. You open it up. You're supposed to drink the methadone in front of the counselor. And you walk away with the cup. What these junkies would do is they get their cup, they drink it in front of the counselor, they walk away, they spit, they spit the methadone back in the cup and sell it to another junkie. So because they want to get heroin, so they're selling this spitback. I know it's disgusting for, and difficult for people to fathom, but it goes on and it's called spitback. So we had an undercover, and he comes back with a couple of cups of spitback. And I remember the, the guy that was getting on that day take. He goes, "What the fuck is this?" He goes methadone he goes i don't want this this was in someone's mouth like it was a, and it was a whole procedure to put liquids and it was a big pain in the ass and that yep. same undercover was a pain in the ass because here's another thing people don't realize and you're gonna laugh angel dust is probably one of the most vile things you can encounter as as a cop it smells bad it smells bad when it's burning it smells bad when it's in a bag you can get you can get a contact high from it it gives you a headache and there was one fucking dust spot. Where was that? In the, in the 2 8? There was the 2 8. There was a 1 the two, 2 5. No, that was in the 2 8. It was 1 2 4 in Lenox Avenue. Same undercover. Comes back with, with, with <laughs> dust. And what dust is, it's, 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 it's marijuana that's been treated with this chemical. And it's like, everyone's got a headache. It's like, fucking, you know, well, you told me not to buy spit back. It's like, we didn't tell you to buy angel dust, but. You know, he was just one of those guys. He was contrary, whatever, whatever, whatever you would. You had to fucking spell things out to a letter with this guy. So, what's the funniest thing that happened to you? A couple of funny things that happened to you when you were making a buy. Um, I remember um, there was there was an incident where I had stepped out with one of my undercover partners, and uh, I was ghosting him, and uh, he was he was uh, he was the type where he really didn't want to get ghosted and he would try to lose you through the projects. And you, you and I both know who that person is, you know? Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, I ghosted um, him a couple of times, too. Yep. And, and um, here I am. I'm trying to ghost him. He goes into the projects. And I, I see that I'm being watched by a bunch of guys across the street. And so what do I do is I dive into a dumpster that's like right across the street from the projects. <laughs> Only to realize that the fucking thing's infested with rats. I'm like, and you see me fucking jump out of that thing fucking quick. And, and, oh uh, man, dude, it's, it's, it's amazing what we, what we put up with, you know. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, let's see if you remember this story. So there was a drug spot on 112th by, uh, by the FDR Drive. And uh, you were the undercover. And you went into this building, and I'll never forget, the front of the building had like a construction uh, facade above it like uh, scaffolding and you went into this building and you bought off a female 
And I'll never forget, I was, I was working with our sergeant, you go positive by female, and you go, she's wearing this fucked up furry coat. You described it like you went into great detail of this coat, right? So we go, all right, one female, it's, it's one piece, it's a female, she's inside the hallway, roll in. So we all pull out, pull up, and this female comes out in the coat, right? So I go, come here, hun. And I grab her by the arm, and she goes, no, real fucked up crackhead, no. And she literally runs out of the coat, and I'm holding the coat like fucking Houdini. She just jumps out of the coat, and I'm holding the coat like an asshole. I throw the coat down. <laughs> I chase her up to a car. I put cuffs on her, right? So we said, okay. So in, in narcotics, after you make the apprehension, the undercovers are going to drive by in an unmarked car with tinted windows, and you're going to tell them to look up in the air, and the undercovers are going to drive by in a car and go, yeah, you got the right person, or no, you don't got the right person, right? Right, right. As I'm waiting for you guys to drive by, I put my hand in my hair, and a bird had shit in my head. <laughs> While I was wrestling with her, so I got, and I got black hair at the time, so I got this big pile of bird shit at the top of my head. Everyone's fucking laughing at me, right? You guys drive by in the car and you go, Vic, that's not her. And I'm like, what? Like, I just fought with this woman. That's the coat. You're like, that's not, you're like, and I, you like, I always trusted you. You're like, that's not her. I'm telling you, right? So like, who did you give this coat to? Because now we're figuring she either bought the coat or she got a coat off a girlfriend. Luckily, inside the coat that she ran at her, she had a couple of vials of crack or whatever, so she was good to go. We were locking her up, right? We're just about to leave that building. Another female comes out in the same fucked up coat. Like, the two of them had the same coat. So I grab her. This one doesn't fight, and a bird doesn't shit in my head. And you drove by again, and you're like, that's her. I don't know if you remember that, but I'll never forget it. It was on 112 over, like, first. On the south side of the state. It's amazing. I haven't thought of that in years. When I was getting ready to do this interview, it just like, it came to me. And let's see. I got all these funny stories. Do you, the same undercover you were talking about that, you, that didn't like to be ghosted. He was hardcore. I remember him watching him, ghosting him on 110 Lex. And someone threw potato chips on the floor in the street. And he would pick them up and eat them. And I had never seen, do you remember he would do crazy yeah, shit like that? Yeah, so, so what he would do is, uh, there, and I'll tell you a funny story. There was a, there was a time where I was ghosting him, and I, and I lost him through the projects. So he would do one thing that I've never seen anybody do, and I knew it was him. So he would buy a slice of pizza and, and eat it on the way to the set. And what he would do is, before he got to the set, if he hadn't finished, he would take the pizza and he would put it on the garbage on the garbage can, like on the garbage, in the garbage. And, and then he would do his buy and come back and then eat the fucking pizza. Like go back, I'm like, dude, you just put that in the garbage. So one day I couldn't find him, and, but I did see a pizza that was halfway eaten in the garbage. And I, and I said to myself, I don't know where he is, but he's coming back for that slice. And I waited and he came back for that slice. Needless to say, I was pissed off for him because he purposely lost me. And that was his thing, he didn't want to get ghosted. I, and I never did. Did you ever ask him why? Did he? Did you ever get an answer out of him? Because I never could get an answer out of him. Well, his his theory was, um, his theory was that if they found the ghost, they were going to find the undercover. So he tried to walk into a building without without the ghost. He was on his own, and that's just the way he liked working on his own. You couldn't talk. I liked him. I mean, he was a really nice guy. He was funny. 
he was a funny guy, but like you're right, there was just no talking to him. But and the only reason probably they let him stay there, despite like his recklessness, was he was good. I mean, he, looked, he, was, he would never know this guy was and, a cop. And I'll be honest with you, he was one of the best undercovers that I've worked with. I believe it, hands hands down. Um, and uh, and aside from buying drugs, he went on to even a better career in buying firearms. Uh, firearms in the city. So that was his thing. Do you remember, I was with a, a, an injured cop. He wasn't hurt that bad, but we got into a foot chase or something on a set. And we were in Columbia Presbyterian, but the one on Broadway up by the Bronx border. And you right, showed up. Um, you yeah, showed up to thing. see how we were doing. Like, that's just, a, you were a good guy. Like, you know, a lot of the undercovers like, hey, I'll see you later. Like, no, you went up there to see how we were doing. And I'll never forget, you could, now, it's obvious we're detectives, right? You walk in and you're in your street clothes and you've got pajamas <laughs> on. I'll never forget this. You're wearing pajamas and you're wearing like a nightcap that looked like a Santa hat. And you had taken the carbon paper and rubbed it all over your face and arms that you look like a dirtbag. And I'm talking to you and you're like, you want me to get your sandwich? And like, there's a couple of nurses and women in the emergency room and they can't believe we're talking to you. And you're like, oh, I'll get you guys a sandwich. She's like, why would you trust that guy with a sandwich? I go, he works with us. She's like, I would have never have known that. Do you remember that? You had your pajamas on, which I thought was the funniest thing in the world. I do. I remember there was a set where I was dressed down and I saw my father-in-law and I had approached my father-in-law. I'm like, what are you doing? He was like, he looked at me like, who the fuck are you? I'm like, it's me, it's Noel. He goes, Noel. And he didn't recognize me because I had so much shit on my face. But, but yeah, you know, you have to dress down for the part. Sometimes you got to dress up for the part, you know? I'll tell you a funny story that you wouldn't be privy to because you were an undercover. So we hit this apartment up in the Heights. And uh, it was a couple of us. I mean, you know how it is. You, you caravan and a bunch of unmarked vehicles. You hit the place. Then then the, the sergeant lieutenant starts sending people home. So it's not as obvious as a police presence in the building. I mean, the drug dealers know right. you're in an apartment, but right. you know, people just walking by would never know the narcotics division's in apartment 3B. So I'm in there with another detective and the sergeant, right? And we're, we're, we're finishing up. Like the perps are gone. Oh, we're waiting on pizza. So we're waiting, someone went to get pizza, right? So no, no, the bad guys were still in the apartment, handcuffed sitting on the floor. And there's a knock at the door. So me and this other detective go to the door and there's this short, hairy guy from New Jersey. And me and this other detective open the door and he looks at us and he looks at the apartment number and he looks at us and he goes, um, uh, I go, what's up? And he says, um, what happened to the Dominican guys that used to live here? I go, no, we threw them out. We're running the show. I go, what do you want? What do you need? And he goes, um, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And he starts walking down the hallway and I go, get back here. And he fucking starts running. He's dude, he starts dumping. He had, he had purchased a couple ounces somewhere else. He wanted to buy another couple ounces to go back to New Jersey. So before he hit the elevator, we grab him, cuff him, put him back in the apartment with the other perps. I'm like, here's your friends. He sits down <laughs> next to them. And then we waited for the pizza. That's funny. That's funny. Shit like that used to go on all the time. Did you ever have any close calls with a forced ingestion or, or, or someone ever attempting to rip you off? No, but you know what, man? Thank God I was never forced to take, a, take an ingestion, take a hit. You know, uh, you always, you know, when you're an undercover man, you have to have the gift of gab. You know, you got to talk your way out of it. You know, I was with one of my, my, my buddies. It was a really good guy who was forced to take a hit. And then, uh, 
and it's a funny story that uh, the guy pulled out a, like what looked like a brick and said, you're going to take a hit so, so that he wouldn't get smashed over the head with a brick. He took a hit. So we had to take him to the hospital. When we locked the guy up, it turns out it was a sponge. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like dude, what the fuck? You know, but it, it's, it's he funny. He probably it's, got his balls busted. Oh, uh, we busted his balls for, for a long time. You know what's funny? Like, I'm retired 16 years. I haven't worked in narcotics in 30 years. And I'll show you my mindset. The other day, you were asking me, we were going back and forth on, on, uh, on text messages, and you said, oh, show, can you show, send me the link to your books, right? So I send you the link, and when the link comes up, it's got my picture on it. And I said, oh, shit, Noel's going to do a hit. <laughs> and I started laughing because... In, in the NYPD, especially the narcotics division, you do not take group photos. You try not to. If right. someone's got a camera, you, you hide your face because what guys do, we call it a hit. What guys will do is they'll take your photo and superimpose it on some fucked up shit. And, yeah. and the first thing I thought of when I sent you that photo, I'm like, no one's going to do it because you were, you were into practical jokes all the I time. I tell you what, to this day, there's still hits that have been following me 25 years. And they still send them in my email. It's the same hits from Narcotics to the 3 Squad. And, but it's a good time. It's, it's, it's fun it's, you know, to look back and say, this is the shit we did, you know? Well, I'm going to see if you remember this story. And it's in my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. One of the teams in our office had a big narcotics seizure. And the chief of narcotics was going to come up to our office to congratulate, get his picture taken with 80 keys right. or whatever it was, right? So obviously we know the chief's coming and the bosses are getting nervous. Like, all right, start cleaning up the office. Take the hits down off the walls. Take down, guys got girls on calendars. Get that shit down. The chief's coming, right? <laughs> so at the time, there's two things going on. Well, while the sergeants are trying to clean up the office, it's like companies coming over and start putting shit away, right? One of the guys in our office, Billy, I don't know if you remember him. He was putting those loads in everybody's cigarettes. Every time well, Billy, someone lit Billy a cigarette Pala, up the Billy Pala. No, no, Billy T. Oh, everybody Billy was T, taking okay. a puff of his cigarette; it would explode in their face. So you had that going on. Everybody's cigarettes had loads in them, right? <laughs> you and the other undercover come into the office. The guy that we were just talking about that didn't like to be ghosted, and one of you has a live chicken under your arm. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, we went to a, a live poultry place. We're gonna put it in so and so's desk and scare the shit out of him, right? So you shove this chicken in someone's desk drawer, and Jeff goes. Get this thing out of here. You can't get this chicken out of here. He goes, if the, if the chief of narcotics sees a chicken in this office, we're all getting transferred, right? <laughs> the other undercover grabs the chicken and starts running up to the roof. And Jeff goes, where are you going with the chicken? He goes, I'll throw it off the roof. Let him fly away because <laughs> chickens don't fly, right? So he comes back down. He comes back down with this chicken under his arm. And we get the phone call that the chief is here. So now the chicken can't leave the office, right? So you guys put the chicken back in the drawer and you keep it open about that much so the thing can breathe. And the thing is clucking in this guy's desk, right? And then the chief comes in and he's taking photos with everybody. And then he takes two cigarettes and we're standing. He, bought, he bummed a cigarette <laughs> off of someone. So we're waiting for the cigarette to blow up in this chief's face. Then as he's leaving, he goes, can I have another cigarette? And Fred goes, uh, no, not Fred. Who was it? I, I think it was uh, Tommy G. He goes, yeah, yeah, boss. And it's like, if this thing blows up in his face, we're all getting trans. You, you know yeah, these bosses. Yeah, they have yeah, no yeah. sense of humor. Do 
Do you remember that? I do. I do remember it like yesterday, man. And it was, uh, it was the sergeant's desk we had put the chicken in. <laughs> that's right. It was a sergeant. That's right. I think I see you're, you're filling in a lot of details. Yep, it was the sergeant's desk. I remember Needless to we say, he opened, up, he opened up the drawer and the chicken almost took his face off. But he found it funny. He, it was, it it was, was a sergeant with glasses, right? Sergeant B? Yep. Sergeant B, yep. Yeah, okay, I remember it. And then we would do doubles. So they would have us come, and it was weird shifts. Like we would come in at six at night till two in the morning, and then two in the morning till 10 o'clock. It was like you would do a double because they wanted us out there basically carpet bombing, carpet bombing these neighborhoods, making buys and locking people up when they didn't expect us to be out. Right. So we were back at the office by like three, four o'clock in the morning. We you know, had done all our paperwork. So we're going to catch a couple hours sleep. So we, there was no place to sleep. So we're sleeping on desks. And one of the detectives who's in another team, the team that, that I used to call that team the gang that couldn't shoot straight because they were always doing stupid shit. We're in the office. It's pitch black. We got the lights off. You got 10 detectives trying to sleep. And this one clown had a clock, clock radio on his desk that every 15 minutes would tell the time in Spanish. And it was fucking loud. And you don't notice it when you're working, right? So you're trying to sleep in here. Boom, son las dos y media. I'm like, where the fuck is that? Like, you're just starting to go back to sleep. Boom, son las dos y So Joe G grabbed a baseball bat and I grabbed something else and we beat this thing to death on the guy's desk. And he came into work and he's like, what the fuck happened? He goes, I leave and my clock radio's at peace. Like, sorry, bro, it was keeping everybody up. Yep. So after your time in narcotics, you, you went on to, to, to work at a detective squad. How, how was that different for you? Like, what kind of shift was that? It, it was different. It was, uh, I went to the 2-8 squad for about a year. Uh, and then I transferred over to the 3-0 squad. But it was a totally different ballgame. You know, it's like, you know, you, you have one aspect where I'm, I'm, I'm wearing clothes and I put it in a barrel and I put outside for a whole year. And I, when I put it on, I smell like shit, and I'm walking around the neighborhood, as opposed to now I'm wearing a suit in the squad, you know. So it was different. It was a, it was a four day, uh, it was four days uh, shift, and then you're off for two days. So the first two days are like a, uh, a four to twelves, and then you got to do two day tours, and and there's that one turnaround where you leave work at one in the morning, and you got to be back at work at seven. So for the guys that lived upstate they would sleep in the command, you know. Uh, but it was, it was totally different. It was, uh, you know, I went from buying drugs until, uh, I went from buying drugs to uh, solving, you know, homicides and, and, and robberies and stuff like that. How, how long are you retired now? Uh, 16 years. It's been 16 years. Oh, so you're not getting called back on anything. But you did homicide, so you never know. You might get called back on things that I go get, to appeal who knows? or something, I right? Get, I'm, I'm, yeah, I may get called. Who knows? Which did you like better? Did you like narcotics or the squad better? I liked narcotics better, man. You know what? For me, it was a, it was just for me it was it was it wasn't going to work. It was it was going to hang out with the fellas at work. You know what I'm saying? So my time in narcotics was a lot better. I liked it. I enjoyed it more. Uh, but you know, you, I, I moved on, and and the squad was a bunch of good guys. I loved everybody in the squad. So I spent uh, like nine years in the three O squad, and that's where I retired from. I, I hear that from a lot of guys, like they'll leave the squad, well, they'll go into the squad from narcotics, and, but they, their heart is in narcotics, and you were there yeah. for, what, seven years? Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, years that's a long time. Like How long were you in the squad for? Nine years. Oh, I didn't realize you worked in the squad that long. 
Yeah, nine years in the three O. Yeah. Did you get grade? Yeah, I finished with second. Uh, then my old my old partner was uh, he was the CEO of Central Robbery in Brooklyn. Yeah, and he was like, come come with me, and I was like, man, I'm just looking to retire. I don't want to go anywhere else. I just want to get out. You know, after 9/11, you know, I lost a lot of my good foot, a lot of my good friends, and it was just different. You know, I just I felt like I had to go. The job did change. You're right about that. The job did change after 9/11. Yeah, it did. You know, uh, and there are a lot of guys uh, who are no longer with us. You know, guys that you know you you, you loved as a brother. You guys worked, in a, you know, together for a long time. You know, and then there there's come a time where you go into the office and that person is long, no longer there. You know, because he's passed. You know, whether whether it be from, you know, 9/11 uh, related issues or, you know cancers or suicides you know and um that's a that's a topic suicide is a topic that's uh you know i i i feel for those guys and those guys should reach out and and call somebody if it's if they need they should talk to somebody you know you, you know it's funny before social media i think the only way nypd guys would find out if someone passed is from a phone call or there's an NYPD magazine you get every, I think it's quarterly called um, Spring 3100, and on the back, they have everyone that's passed in the department. I guess it goes through your pension, and they'll, they'll put your name and where you worked and from what time to what time. Now through social media, people post things all the time, rest in yeah. peace, that one, rest in peace. And it's just so, um, it hits you, it's weird, because I, you probably, like me, belong to all these retired NYPD Facebook groups, and just the other day, I just logged on, and I'm staring at this woman's face, and I go, Jesus, she looks familiar. And it was my, um, it was the woman that was assigned to investigate me to come on the job, my from the police applicant unit. And unfortunately, yeah. she just passed a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago wow. from cancer. And I hadn't thought of this woman in years, but uh, you're right. It's, um, you know, and unfortunately, some people commit suicide, and a lot of it is is 9/11 related cancers. And you had posted that the other day about listen. It's free. Get your screening. You know, get get yourself checked out to make sure you don't have something, God forbid, growing inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys, uh, for some reason, they're afraid to get checked out, man. It's like they're afraid of, of whatever news they're going to get. And and the way I try to explain it to people is like, you got to go. You know, you got to give you got you owe it to yourself to at least give yourself that fighting chance to survive, you know, instead of just like not go and, and, and hey, it's too late, you know. Yeah, for 20 years you're walking around in, in, in a dangerous city with more guns on the street. You make it off, you know, you retire, you want to enjoy your pension, you want to enjoy the next phase of your life. Like you said, okay, they find something, but get it checked out as opposed to, you know, going through something painful and they can't do anything for you because you've let it go, get past that point right. where they can treat you. Right, right. So what are you up to now? Like, I know you're, you're a licensed realtor. I am. I, I work for Remax. Uh, I try and stay busy, so I work for Remax. I'm a licensed realtor. Uh, I'm an investigative consultant at ACS. I've been doing that for about 12 years. I do. So you're a private investigator. Uh, I, I was. I, I don't do that anymore. Uh, so I'm a I'm an investigative consultant with the city with ACS, uh, and then I work on Mini Coopers, which is a, a hobby of mine. Yeah, you're quite handy. I was looking at some of your photos. I'm like, man, if you if I was in the auto crime division, we would definitely stop by your garage to check things. 
will fight you don't know Chuck Norris. Like, but where did this fender come from? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, right. But uh, but yeah, you know that's that's my hobby. You know, it's it's uh, I spend a lot of my time with my grandson these days, and working, and then uh, on my spare time, it's uh, I still have my hobby with cars, and uh, I rebuild uh, Mini Cooper engines and and cylinder heads and and. That's just a passion of mine that I've always had. And now that I have the time to do it, I do it. And we get off air. I'm going to talk to you about writing a book because you should write a book. You've got an interesting career, and I'm going to try to walk you through the process. Noel, I want to thank you for being on the show. It means a lot to me taking your Vic, time out and spending an hour for, with me. Thank you for having me, buddy. Uh, it was, it, this, this is one of my more fun interviews. I haven't seen you in so long. I also want to thank everyone for tuning in, especially my listeners in Buffalo, New York, London, Ontario, Hackensack, New Jersey, and Columbia, South Carolina. If you work in law enforcement and like to be a guest on my show, drop me a note on Twitter and Instagram, at VicFerrari50. If you enjoy the content, check out my Amazon author page. Type in my name, Vic. Ferrari Like the Car, where you can preview all my books for free, including NYPD Law and Disorder. And again, they make great Christmas gifts, and they're only 10 bucks. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll have another episode up next week.